Hi, this is Pastor Wilson. Thank you for tuning into Renew Church OC. The exciting news is that we moved up the street to Brea's Curtis Theater, and we love it. We'd love for you to come to see the space in person. Our current series is Spiritual Resilience, where we walk through Ephesians chapter 6, learning how to put on the full armor of God in our daily lives. It's easy to forget that we're in a spiritual battle, but if we are blind to Satan's schemes, then we won't be able to fight back. I hope this series helps you see the battle and fight it with other believers. Well, I want to welcome you to boot camp for one last time. Uh, it's been a pleasure being uh, your drill sergeant, and I know Kristen makes fun of me. She doesn't know who I am. I'm a sergeant major, a general. I'm a lowly drill sergeant. I'm a terrible drill sergeant at that, too. But it's just been great. Uh, welcome to boot camp. Uh, we are actually going to uh, conclude uh, the Armor of God series. I trust it's been a blessing to you. I trust it's been a help. Uh, it's designed to be very practical. And uh, we're finishing up uh, with the section on prayer. Actually, the idea of prayer being the last part of our spiritual armor. Uh, if you would, uh, you could take your Bibles, turn to 1 Kings chapter 18 in your devices, 1 Kings chapter 18. Um, you can all also look on uh, up here. Uh, we have the verses set for you. 1 Kings chapter 18. I'm going to read the Word of God. Let's read it. Well, <clears throat> not read it together, sorry. We've been doing that. Uh, please follow along uh, as I read. At the time of sacrifice, the prophet Elijah stepped forward and prayed, Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known today that you are God in Israel, and that I am your servant and have done all these things at your command. Answer me, Lord. Answer me so these people will know that you, Lord, are God and that you are turning their hearts back again. Verse 38, then the fire of the Lord fell and burned up the sacrifice, the wood, the stones, and the soil and licked up the water in the trench. And when all the people saw this, they fell prostrate and cried, The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. Verse 40. Then Elijah commanded them to seize the prophets of Baal. Don't let anyone get away. They seized them, and Elijah had them brought down to the Kishon Valley and slaughtered there. And Elijah said to Ahab, Go eat and drink, for there is a sound of a heavy rain. And so Ahab went off to eat and drink, but Elijah climbed to the top of Mount Carmel, bent down to the ground, and put his face between his knees. Go and look toward the sea, he told his servant. And he went and looked up. There is nothing there, he said. Seven times Elijah said, go back. Verse 44, the seventh time, the servant reported, a cloud as small as a man's hand is rising from the sea. So Elijah said, go and tell Ahab, Hitch up your chariot and go down before the rain stops you. Verse 45. Meanwhile, the sky grew black with clouds. The wind rose. A heavy rain started falling. And Ahab rode off to Jezreel. Verse 46. And the power of the Lord came upon Elijah. And tucking his cloak into his belt, he ran ahead of Ahab all the way to Jezreel. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. Now, what is prayer? Prayer, simply put, is connecting with God. Prayer is the human heart in communication with God. 
connecting, conversing, communicating with God is vital to our victory in the Christian life. And so we want to look at the life of a man who we see as a prayer warrior, a man who lived out spiritual warfare in the Old Testament. And we see a man who definitely knew how to communicate with the Almighty. If I could just review his life, here Elijah enters King Ahab's palace and states that because of Israel's sin, there will be no dew, there will be no rain except at his word. And for three and a half years, there is a debilitating massive drought that was set upon the land. God sends Elijah to the Kirith Ravine, and here he waits for the Lord and he prays. And miraculously, ravens bring him bread and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening and sustain him while he is there. God moves him to Zarephath of Zidon, a Gentile city, and here he stays with a widow woman and her son, and there he prays, and miraculously, he is given just enough flour and oil every day to survive the famine. It was there that the widow woman's son dies unexpectedly. Elijah prays on top of the boy, and miraculously, he is brought back to life again. Elijah goes back to Israel and arrives at Mount Carmel to challenge the 400 prophets of the god Baal and 450 of the prophets of the goddess Ashura. These 850 prophets challenge Elijah. They pray all day beseeching their gods to answer the sacrifice by fire but to no avail. And then Elijah prays a short prayer. The NIV Uh, gives it 58 words, and miraculously, fire falls down from heaven and consumes everything, the sacrifice, but also the woods, wood and the stones and that whole area. And we see great revival is experienced by Israel as Israel repents of their idolatry and returns back to God. I want you to look at the life of a man who was truly a prayer warrior, a man who knew how to get a hold of God, powerful, effective communication in connecting with the Almighty in his life. And as we look at the life of this Old Testament prayer warrior, in 1 Kings chapter 18, we want to study Elijah's prayer for rain. And I want to examine the ingredients to having a powerful prayer life that make up an effective prayer warrior. So if you're taking notes, I always give points. It's very easy to follow. But the first point that we want to look at is presumption in prayer. Presumption in prayer. Can I share with you this? Presumption can be very biblical and very appropriate. Let me say that again. Presumption can be very biblical and very appropriate. And we need presumption, that bold, confident expectation that God will answer our prayers. And I want you to notice presumption in Elijah's words where he says, go eat and drink, for there is a sound of a heavy rain. Now imagine the context in which he said this. Imagine being one of the people who were earshot of what Elijah said. Now it hasn't rained in the land of Israel for three and a half years. There is not a cloud in the sky. There is no sound of lightning 
or thunder. There is not any moisture in the atmosphere that would lead anybody to believe that it was going to rain. So the question is, how can you presume that it's going to rain when it hasn't for three and a half years? Elijah had this bold, confident expectation that God was going to send rain. Can I share this with you? Presumption can be very unbiblical and very dangerous. You might say, well, what is it? Is presumption biblical and appropriate? Or is a, a presumption unbiblical and very dangerous? Well, it's both. Because presumption can be dangerous when it's an unwarranted assumption. Now, the question we have is, was this an unwarranted assumption? Was Elijah's confidence based on something that we could hold on to? And here are the three things that our presumption in prayer must be based on. As we pray to the Lord with this bold, confident expectation, it needs to be tethered to three things. Number one, faith in God's word. Number two, obedience to God's will. And number three, desire for God's glory. The first one, faith in God's word. Do you know why Elijah expected it to rain? Well, in 1 Kings chapter 18 and verse 1, if you want to look there, there, excuse me, it says, after a long time in the third year, the word of the Lord came to Elijah, go and present yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain on the land. So right before the showdown with the prophets of Baal and Asherah on Mount Carmel, God told Elijah that he was going to send rain. So Elijah was confident based on God's word. You see, the object of faith was God's word. And this is very important to note because presumption is an unwarranted assumption when it's, when it's not based on the objective word of God, when it's based on our feelings and on our emotions. You know, um, I'll share this story. You know, uh, many, many years ago, uh, I was doing a retreat out in Nashville, Tennessee, and a friend of mine who lived in Paducah, Kentucky, I've shared this guy's name so many times, you've probably heard his name, Ledford Hodges, okay, one of my best friends, uh, actually said, hey, let's uh, drive from Nashville to Paducah, and I'll take you hunting with me. Now, I'd never gone hunting. I'd never killed an animal and skinned it and ate it in my life, but that sounded so awesome to be able to do that, right? So I remember being so excited, but we didn't have a car to drive from Nashville to Paducah, and there was a guy named Bill who said, I want to do that too. He had a Trans Am, right? So we said, yeah, let's, uh, let's go. So Bill came with us. So it was Ledford, uh, Steve, uh, another friend of mine, it and me, and it was Bill. And we're all in this Trans Am, and we were driving from Nashville, Tennessee to Paducah, Kentucky. Now, if you know anything about those, uh, that area, it's a long stretch of mountains. It's very hilly. Right, you had the Blue Ridge Mountains going through. So it was very scenic, very beautiful. But as we were going through the Blue Ridge Mountains, I remember seeing a sign that said, uh, no gas for the next 20 miles. And this was the last gas station, right? So no gas for the next 20 miles, and then I see this gas station. And so as we uh, were going, I noticed, right, because, you know, uh, this is really important, right? Uh, I looked, and uh, his gas gauge, the Trans Am gas gauge, was actually on E, right? And you know what that means, right? And the light was on. And so automatically, I actually nudge Bill, and I say, hey, Bill, uh, look, your, your thing's on E. Let's get gas, right? 
And I remember he looked at me. Uh, I'll never forget this. He looked at me and he smiled, right? And then he kept going. And I thought, oh, my gosh, what is wrong with him, right? Now, he wasn't a close friend of mine, right? Ledford and, and Steve were. We just kind of brought him along because he had a Trans Am, and he was driving. And we thought, oh, it's so weird. So we all said, hey, hey, uh, your gas gauge is on E. That means empty. Uh, there's not gas. Turn around and get some gas. And I remember he kind of laughed. He was <laughs> and he kept driving. And we thought, what is wrong with this guy? And so we kept telling him, hey, we need to get gas. And he said, hey, dude, don't worry about it, man. He goes, I know my Trans Am. This is my baby. I know my car. We're not going to run out of gas, right? And sure enough, in the middle of that trip, we ran out of gas, right? Of course, because that gas gauge said E. And I remember getting out of the car, and I'm not as spiritual, you know, as I, I wasn't as spiritual then as I am today. So I was really angry, you know. I didn't curse or anything, but I was just so angry. I remember getting out of the car, just yelling and screaming. I said, Bill, I said, you're so stupid. Why didn't you get gas? And I'll never forget what he said. He looked at me, and he looked at all of us bewildered, and he said this. I didn't feel like we were going to run out of gas. That's what he said. I didn't feel like we were going to run out of gas. But that's exactly how Christians live their Christian life many times. The objective gas gauge of the word of God tells us and warns us and even encourages us to get gas. But many times in our lives, we have this unwarranted assumption based on our feelings, based on our experiences, based on emotion. And we live very opposite of the objective word of God. Here, Elijah's confidence was not based on some Mount Carmel high. If there was ever a time that Elijah uh, could have tried to base his life on feelings and emotions, it was right now. God's fire had fallen. Revival had happened. But his confidence was always tethered to the word of God. The second thing that we need to tether ourselves to is obedience to God's will. How did Elijah know it was going to rain? Well, in 2 Chronicles chapter 7, you guys know this passage very well if you've been in Sunday school or if you've heard of the messages. 2 Chronicles chapter 7 and verse 13, this passage that existed 100 years before Elijah was even born was given to Israel. And this is what it says, 2 Chronicles chapter 7. When I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain, or command locusts to devour the land, or send a plague among my people. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven, I will forgive their sin, and I will heal their land. So here, a hundred years before Elijah was born, uh, God said, when I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain. That's what was happening right now. You see, God promised that he would heal, that he would send rain if they humbled themselves and sought him and turned away from their wickedness. And that's what Israel had just done in our text. In chapter 18 and verse 39, they returned back to the Lord and abandoned their sin. What am I saying? I'm saying that we can only have confidence in prayer when we're living in obedience to God's will. We can only have confidence when we know that we're living in obedience. Psalm 66 verse 18 says this. If I had regarded sin in my heart, the Lord would not hear me. But God has surely listened. He has given heed to the voice of my prayer. You see, God hears when we're walking in obedience to him. Are we praying out God's will in our lives? 
And then the third aspect that we need to look at to make sure that this is this presumption is a God-honoring presumption is number three, desire for God's glory. Desire for God's glory. Why was Elijah so confident that it was going to rain? Isaiah 48, verse 9, here God is speaking and he says, For my own name's sake I delay my wrath. For the sake of my praise I hold it back so as not to cut you off. For my own sake, for my own sake I do this. How can I let myself be defamed? I will not yield my glory to another. Here we see that God is jealous and zealous for his glory. And it's the right expression of who he is. God has a right to be jealous and zealous for his glory. And remember, if that is true, then prayer is answered to give God glory. That prayer is always answered to give glory to God. I remember a while back, I was uh, flipping channels, and I turned to a Christian radio, uh, a Christian TV uh, station. And I remember this preacher wearing all white. He had a, a white suit on with all of these, uh, the, these gold necklaces and gold rings on. And this is what he said. He said, this is the year of jubilee for the Christian. Uh, this is the time of great prosperity if you have enough faith. And the way that you showed faith was you were to send him seed money, right? You were to send him all kinds of money. And if you prayed in faith sending the seed money, then God would give you a mansion. Or God would give you a Rolls Royce. That's what he said. Or God would give you a jet plane. He'd give you all this materialistic blessing if you just had enough faith. And I remember watching this and thinking to myself, if God gave me all those things, or God gave you all these things, who would receive the glory? Who would receive the glory? James chapter 4 and verse 3 says, when you ask, you do not receive, because you ask with wrong motives, that you may consume what you get on your own pleasures. You see, what is the motive behind your prayers? Is it to consume it upon your own pleasures? Is it a self-serving motive? Is it a selfish attitude and motive? Or is it genuinely prayed to give God glory? You see, presumption. We should come boldly before the throne of grace, expecting God will answer when our prayers are according to his word, according to his will, and according to his glory. Let's look at the second point that we want to look at, and that is passion, the passion in prayer. Uh, let's look. Uh, notice Elijah's desire in verse 42. And Elijah climbed to the top of Carmel, bent down to the ground, and put his face between his knees. Now, why did he pray this way? Uh, the normal orthodox posture of prayer is just like it is today for the Jew. To stand up straight with your head up, looking towards heaven, and with your hands out. Speaking to the Almighty as a friend to a friend. Why did he pray with his face bent down to his knees? And that seems like a very peculiar way of praying, right? I don't even think as a 54-year-old I could even do that anymore, okay? But why was he praying this way? Was this a model of how we should pray? Was this a holier, more effective way that we should pray? Was this the right kind of posture? You know, there's a clue that's given to why Elijah prayed this way. And it's found in chapter 17 in verse 1. And in chapter 17 in verse 1, it says, Elijah was a Tishbite from Tishbe in Gilead. So if you know anything about the geography of Israel, Gilead was way up in the mountains of Israel. And Tishbe was way up in the mountains 
of Gilead, which made Elijah a hillbilly. Did you know that? Elijah was a hick. He was a yahoo. He was a redneck from Tishbe. Now, this is important to know because many times when we think of Elijah, we think of this superhuman, sophisticated superman. That, wasn't, that was farthest from the truth. This guy was a hillbilly. And the reason why he prayed with his face between his knees was he didn't have any education in the way that you're supposed to pray, right? Uh, he wasn't cultured. There was no sophistication of praying an orthodox posture. He lived up in the hills. He didn't know anything about that. You know what that tells us? That tells us that the posture of prayer is not important. You know, there are 22 different ways recorded in Scripture that people prayed. And God would listen to every single one of those postures. You see, God doesn't care about the posture of prayer. God cares only about the passion of your prayer. See, it's not the outward show that matters to God, but it's the inward attitude. Do you really want to meet with him? Do you have a genuine desire to walk with him? You see, our motivation to meet with the Lord is revealed in the passion of our prayers. Study the prayers of the Bible. When we look at the life of uh, Jacob, we see that as he wrestled with God, he would not let God go until God blessed him. He would not let God go until God uh, answered his prayers. And here we see that Jacob's name was changed from Jacob, meaning deceiver, to Israel, meaning the prince of his people. We look at Hannah in the Bible as she cried out and shouted to the Lord, so much so that people thought she was drunk, that people thought she was inebriated because of the way she was carrying on. David in the Bible, when we read Psalm chapter 63, he says, oh God, you're my God. Early will I seek you. My flesh longs for you. My body thirsts for you. My soul thirsts for you in a dry and, and parched land where there's no water. David is saying, I cry out and I want you like water uh, for, my, uh, for my soul. Jeremiah, the Bible says, wept continuously over Israel in intercession. Daniel prayed in thanksgiving and praise to God, and he made it a regular feature of his life. And our Lord Jesus himself, when he prayed the high priestly prayer with his disciples, and then when he prayed again at the Garden of Gethsemane, he prayed urgent prayers. Do we come to God with that kind of passion in our lives? I'm not saying we need to come every time wrestling and crying and weeping and sweating and shouting. That's not what I'm saying. I realize that in the context, these believers were going through major circumstances in their lives. But what I am saying is, whether you're on the mountaintops or in the valleys or somewhere in between the routine rhythm of life, do you come with a burning desire to meet with God? All prayer warriors have that same passion when they meet with the Lord. You know, I think this is really interesting. Prayer is answered in four ways. Did you know this? Prayer is answered in four ways. It's answered sometimes in go, where God gives us the green light. And he says, yes, I want to give you exactly what you've been asking for. But sometimes God says, no, I do not want to give you that. It's a clear, I will not do it. But sometimes it's a slow, when God is silent and he tarries a while. He makes you wait for that to happen. Or maybe it's the idea of grow, 
when he deals with us in detours and zigzags, when we pray for something and God gives us something that is totally different, but it comes back to what we originally wanted. And he does that for us to grow and mature. So go, know, slow, and grow. My question is, can we passionately pursue God in all of these categories of our lives? The third point is persistence in prayer. Persistence. Verse 43, go and look toward the sea, Elijah told his servant. And his servant went up and looked and said, there is nothing there. Seven times, Elijah says, go back. Now think about this. Why seven times? You know, in the Bible, numbers matter. And the number seven is the number of completion. It's the number of perfection in the Bible. So what this text is teaching us is that Elijah keeps praying with persistence until it's perfected. He keeps praying with persistence until it's completed. And I want you to notice that Elijah tells his servant to go back and forth seven times to look for a sign that rain was coming. And it was only at that seventh time that Elijah saw his prayer answered. Do we pray with that kind of persistence? You see, some prayers we pray with presumption, we pray with passion, and yet God decides to remain silent. God decides to tarry a while. The question we have to ask ourselves is, do we quit? Do we stop praying? Or do we keep praying until he gives us an answer? And you know, a prayer warrior must continue praying things through. In Luke chapter 11, the disciples asked Jesus how to pray. Many of you are familiar with this passage. And te Jesus teaches them using, uh, using grammar that maybe we're not as familiar with. We know the passage very well, and I'm going to put it up here so you can take a look at it. But I want you to notice the grammar in Greek uh, has the idea of continuous action. So I'll read it in the way that it's intended for us to take it in the Greek, okay? So this is what it says in verse 9. So I say to you, keep asking, and it will be given to you. Keep seeking, and you will find. Keep knocking, and the door will be opened to you. It's the idea of continuous, persistent action. Verse 10, for everyone who persistently asks, receives. The one who persistently seeks, finds. The one who persistently knocks, the door will be opened. So the disciples ask Jesus, how do we pray? And Jesus answers by saying that we go to God constantly asking, seeking, and knocking. That there is a persistence. Now why? Why are we supposed to do that? Well, Jesus gives us the idea of a family dynamic. Look, let's look in verse 11. Can we show that? Which of you fathers, if your son asks for a fish, will give him a snake instead? Or if he asks for an egg, we'll give him a scorpion. Verse 13, if then, though you are sinful, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? You see, God, who is the Father, is delighted in giving his children who persistently come to him asking, seeking, and knocking. You see, we can boldly enter the throne of God anytime. Just as, you, just as we are, in whatever state we find ourselves. And we can pour out whatever we're facing to the God of the universe because he is Abba, because he's Father. And we can go to him again and again and again. 
You know, when my daughter Alexis was 10 years old, uh, she uh, came one Saturday into my home office a countless times as I was preparing my sermon. And it was so interesting that I actually recorded it. I wrote it down. And this is what she said. L let me read this to you. So this was one Saturday. She's 10 years old. And this is what she did. Daddy, I'm hungry. Can you make me ramen? Can you put an egg in it? Daddy, I got a joke for you. I made it up myself, so you have to laugh, okay? Daddy, explain God to me. I don't understand the Trinity. Daddy, I sprained my ankle. Can you rub my ankle? Can you put some Bengay on it? Daddy, can you play musical quilts? Daddy, can you play dance party with me? Daddy, will you buy me an American Girl accessories for Christmas? Here's the website. Will you look at it with me? Daddy, I'm mad at Mommy. She's mean. She's firm. I don't like her. Daddy, will you read me a book before I go to bed? It has to be more than one book, okay? She persistently, one Saturday, came into my room countless times, raw and real, in whatever state, pouring out whatever she was facing. And can I share with you, I never got tired of it. I never got, I didn't say, hey, you stupid girl, go away. I never said that. Because I love hearing my girl's requests. I'm her father. My joy is seeing her come to me. Her persistence is my pleasure. And that's exactly what we see here. When God tells us to be persistent in prayer, our persistence is God's pleasure. He wants us to come to him. Number four, we see power in prayer. Let's look in verse 45. Meanwhile, the sky grew black with clouds. The wind rose. A heavy rain started falling, and Ahab rode off to Jezreel. Verse 46, the power of the Lord came upon Elijah, tucking his cloak into his belt. He ran ahead of King Ahab all the way to Jezreel. Now, Elijah's prayer has finally been answered. And just as the rain begins to fall, God's supernatural power falls upon Elijah, and he performs one of those most amazing miracles that we see in the Bible. And we tend to overlook this miracle because of all the things that are going on. But let me remind you that Mount Carmel was 20 miles from the capital of Israel, and that is Jezreel. So 20 miles away. Now I want you to notice Elijah tells Ahab to go on his fastest, uh, on his fastest chariot with his fastest Arabian horses back down to Jezreel, which is 20 miles away. And picture this old guy, Elijah, as he takes, and back then, everybody wore long flowing robes. So in order to run, you had to grab the hem of your garment. You had to pick it up and put it in your cloak or in your belt and create kind of a Nike short, okay? And then you could run. And so picture this old man, Elijah, running at a full sprint 20 miles faster than Ahab's chariots. Wow, what a miracle. That is the power of prayer. Are you seeing the supernatural hand of God working in your life today? Presumptive, passionate, persistent prayer will always lead to power. Can I get an amen? In 1540, can we put this up? Uh, a man by the name of Frederick Myconius, who's the top of that picture, okay, was a friend and co-worker of Martin Luther, who's the bottom of that picture. And he was a great uh, uh, worker in the in the Reformation that was happening in Ger Germany. Now, Frederick Myconius in 1540 fell deeply ill, and the doctor said that he would die, that there's no chance that he could live, and that he should get his affairs in order. And so Frederick Myconius, uh, when it was time for him to die, on his deathbed, he wrote a loving farewell letter 
to his dear friend Martin Luther, who was ministering reformation in the city next to him. So he sent his servant with this beautiful, heartfelt letter. And that very same day, a letter came back from Martin Luther replying to this beautiful, heartfelt letter. And this is what it said. Look at it, okay? He, he says this, I command you in the name of God to live. Imagine the presumption, but that was Martin Luther. I command you in the name of God to live. I still need you in the work of reformation. The Lord will never permit me to hear of your death, but will out, allow you to outlive me. For this I am praying day and night. This is my will. May my will be done because my will seeks to glorify God. Isn't that beautiful? Every ingredient that we just studied, presumption, passion, persistence, we see it in his prayer. And guess what? Miraculously, one week later, he fully recovered to the shock of all the doctors. And here's the kicker. I love this. Frederick Myconius finally did die, but he died living a full life two months after Martin Luther. Isn't that amazing? That is the power of prayer. And I want you to notice, lastly, the pattern of prayer. I want you to look at this. Why was Elijah so effective? Why was he so effective? This prayer warrior, was he some metahuman with mutant powers? Was he this super saint, superman with super talents and abilities? James chapter 5 says it this way. This is the New Testament speaking of Elijah, and it says this. The prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. Elijah was a man just like us. Get those three words, just like us. He was a hick hillbilly from Tishbe, just like us, right? He prayed earnestly that it wouldn't rain, and it did not rain on the land for three and a half years. Again, he prayed, and the heavens gave rain. That's the summary of his life, that Elijah was just an ordinary guy, just a guy just like us. So the question that's begged is, what made him so effective? What made him such a prayer warrior? And the answer is that his whole life was characterized by prayer. Elijah's power came from an entire life devoted to and characterized by a lifestyle of prayer. That's what made him a prayer warrior. You know, when I was a young uh, Christian, actually a young uh, uh, Bible college student starting out, I remember I wanted to be a better prayer warrior because I wasn't very good at praying, right? Such hard work. And maybe you can agree with me. Prayer, you know, it's kind of tough, right? So I bought a book by this well-renowned guy by the name of Oswald Sanders, and the book was entitled Prayer. And I was so excited. I, I paid $14.99 for that book, okay? And I thought, man, it has secrets in here, and I started reading it. And you know what it said? And here's the summary of the book. The summary of the book was prayer is hard work. And it totally irritated me, and it annoyed me, because I paid $14.99 for a book to tell me something I already knew. As a matter of fact, that's the reason I bought the book, because I wanted some, instant, I wanted some formulas. I wanted some magical shortcuts. But, you know, as I grow as a Christian, and the more I understand this truth, there are no instant formulas. There are no magical shortcuts. Prayer is hard work. Amen? <laughs> Prayer is hard work because a relationship is hard work. Because intimate communication is hard work. Any married person will tell you that. If you're, if you're just getting uh, ready to get married and, you know, we need church, we're blessed with so many people who are, who are about to get married. It's so awesome. 
can I share with you, the honeymoon is the easiest thing, right? Because after the honeymoon, it's all hard work. That's what it is. I don't want to, you know, I don't want to lie to you. When you get married, it's going to be working on your communication and your building relationship skills. And that's exactly what prayer is. Prayer is intimate communication with God who is your spouse. We are the bride of Christ. And here we see that building a deeper relationship takes work. And it takes hard work, but the rewards are so great. They're so satisfying. Amen? You know, I'm a Laker fan. Those of you, how many of you are Laker fans here? Would you raise your hand? Okay, good, good, good. Are there any Sacramento Kings fans here? Would you raise your hand? Oh, one Sacramento King. I knew it. JJ's here. Okay, so you're going to hate this illustration, but hey, I'm going to give it anyway. Okay, I'm a Laker fan. Do you remember, JJ, the 2002 uh, Western, Conference fi- uh, Western Conference Finals? Okay, all right. Because the Lakers won, of course, and Sacramento lost, okay? It was game three where the Kings had, you know, Chris Webber, Vladi Divac. They had a really great team. And in the last seconds of the game, can we show Robert Ori, right, who is a big-time scorer, drains a buzzer beater, a three-pointer to win the game. And back then, Steph Curry wasn't around, right? Nobody knew three-pointers would be as prevalent as today. And so this was a big deal. The last seconds of the game, Robert Ori hits a, a, a buzzer beater, right, over Chris Webber, and he just goes crazy. He starts doing the, you know, the Superman, right, where he's, he's showing his muscles and everybody's going crazy. Well, I remember Channel 7 News, Rob Fukujaki, remember him? Rob Fukujaki Sports, right? He was uh, interviewing the players. He interviewed Vladi Divac, and he asked, hey, what did you think of Robert Ori's, uh, you know, buzzer beater? And Vladi, full of bitterness, right, just said, oh, I was just luck. It was just luck, right? So Rob Fukujaki actually went to Rob Ori, and he said, hey, Vladi Divac said that your buzzer beater was luck. What do you think? And I love what he said. Robert Ori said, that wasn't luck. It was experience. I love that. It wasn't luck. It was experience. What was he saying? He was saying, hey, listen, I'm experienced. All the times that I played club and high school and AAU and college and NBA, it was all experience. I've been practicing that shot my entire life. Robert Ori was saying, that his whole life was devoted to and characterized by shooting. And see, that's so important for us to understand. In the same way, when we see Elijah's miraculous prayer life, we sometimes forget the thousands upon thousands of hours that Elijah prayed that is not recorded in the Bible. The thousands upon thousands of prayers uh, on the hills of Gilead, in the town of Tishbe, by the ravines of Kirith, inside the house of Zarephath. Can I share with you, Elijah was a man just like us who knew how to pray because his whole life was characterized by prayer. No wonder he knew how to get a hold of God. Elijah had an intimate relationship in communication with God. What am I saying? I'm saying, do we know God that way? Beloved, as a soldier of Jesus Christ, wearing the armor is essential. But can I ask you, do you know how to get a hold of God in disciplined, deliberate, determined prayer? Are you a prayer warrior? My prayer is that you would become a man and woman who, like Elijah, 
knew how to communicate with God. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We ask, Lord, that you would speak to us about this area that so often we neglect because it takes discipline, because it's hard, because there's so many other distractions and so many responsibilities we have. Father, teach us that this is vital to our life as a believer. And teach us once again how to be men and women of disciplined prayer. We pray this in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. Thanks for listening. Since I have you here, I wanted to give you a few more resources and talk about how you can invest in our ministry. If you look at the description section of this podcast, we have a website for the church and would love to have you come visit us when you're in town. We're in Brea, California. We also have tax-deductible giving at Renew, and we would love for you to invest in our church and our seminarians as we have people coming in to become future missionaries and pastors at Renew. We want to train up the next generation of pastors to reach their generation for the Lord. There's also a few more resources. At the very bottom, I do a podcast with Roy Kim, who's an MFT. It's called The Same Boat, where we talk about issues from English ministries at immigrant Chinese churches to relationships and being single. I hope that you would enjoy this podcast with us as a way to talk off the pulpit and into our daily lives. And lastly, Nina and I wrote a children's book series called To Be, helping kids integrate their faith with their occupation. And on that website, there's also The Adulting Journal. If you're in your 20s or 30s and you're going through transition in career, relationship, or just rethinking your spirituality, this is a great space for you to examine inward and find what God has written on your hearts and in your values. I hope that those resources uh, would connect with your heart and that you would connect with us. God bless.